Welcome to this OLTV podcast series titled The Mystical Theology of the Eastern Church Fathers by Metropolitan Callistos of Dioclea. This eighth episode is on the teachings of St. Gregory of Sinai. Good afternoon. In the last three of my talks on mystical theology, I will be looking at the 14th century, at the Hesychast movement during that time. Today we will consider Gregory of Sinai, the next talk Gregory Palamas, and the final talk, Callistos and Ignatios Xanthopoulos. So we could give as title for this afternoon's talk, St. Gregory of Sinai, The Revelation of Baptism. Now just now I used the word hersichasm. So let's begin by discussing what this term means. In Greek, the word hesychia signifies quiet, stillness, silence. Now it can be understood in an external way. A hesychast, one who pursues hesychia, might mean a hermit, someone not living amidst the bustle of a large Sedovitic monastery, but dwelling in solitude. But more commonly, the term hesychia and its derivatives, hesychasm, and hesychast is used to indicate an inner attitude. The hesychast is one who practices inner prayer, who seeks silence of the heart, one in particular who practices the kind of prayer of which Evagrius speaks, prayer without images, without thoughts, without words. Prayer of stillness. So, St. John Climacus, in his famous work, The Ladder of Divine Ascent, written in the 7th century, says, The hesychast is one who strives to confine his incorporeal self within his bodily house, paradoxical though this might sound. So the hesychast is one who returns within himself and who seeks the inner kingdom, who seeks to enter and to dwell within the heart. Elsewhere, John Climacus says, Hesychia is 
a laying aside of thoughts. And Gregory of Sinai says the same thing. The hesychast is one who abstains from thoughts. So here, hesychiah and hesychasm means practicing non-iconic prayer, apophatic prayer, such as we find in Evagrius. Incidentally, St. Simeon, the new theologian, does not particularly discuss the question of laying aside of images. This is not a major theme for Simeon, but it is a major theme for the 14th century Hesychast writers. And more particularly, Hesychasm can mean one who seeks inner silence of the heart through the Jesus prayer. We saw earlier how St. Diadocus of Photiki regards the Jesus prayer as a way of shutting out images, wandering thoughts, concentrating upon the simple presence of the Saviour Jesus. Now the 14th century in Byzantine spirituality is dominated by the two Gregories. Gregory of Sinai, Gregory Palamas. Their lifetimes overlapped. They were probably on the holy mountain of Athos at the same moment. But it's not clear whether they ever actually met one another. St. Gregory of Sinai was a great wanderer. He was born in Asia Minor, perhaps in the 1260s, perhaps a bit later. In his youth, he was captured by pirates and was taken to Syria. When he was liberated, he went to Cyprus and there he was given the first grade in the monastic life. He became a Rasophore. From Cyprus he went on to Sinai, and uh, there he was made a full monk, concert, and given the habit. Later on he traveled to Crete, and then to Mount Athos. Towards the end of his life, he commuted between Athos and the Strangia Mountains, which are on the borders between Byzantium and Bulgaria. And his last years were spent in these mountains, at a place called Paroria, which means on the border. And there he gathered round him a large group of disciples, not merely Greeks, but also Slavs. And in 1346, he died at Paroria. His disciples 
traveled all over the Eastern Christian world. Some of them became patriarchs of Constantinople. Others are found at Turnovo in Bulgaria, at Vidin in Serbia, and at Kiev. We can talk in the 14th century of a Hesychast International. Saint Gregory, yes, was a wanderer. That does not mean that he was guilty of instability. This was a travel period for the Byzantine Empire, a time of economic and military weakness, though a time of spiritual strength. The Byzantine Empire was contracting before the inexorable advance of the Ottoman Turks. And in many places, the Byzantines were no longer able to keep order or protect people. And so many of Gregory's wanderings may have been due to the political and military instability of the time. However, for the Christian East, monastic stability does not necessarily mean living all your life in the same monastery. Stability is understood as remaining faithfully in your cell. Wherever you go, you stay in your cell, pray there. But you might have occasion to move your cell from one place to another according to circumstances. St. Benedict understands stability rather differently. But Gregory of Sinai is not alone in being a great wanderer. Go and sit in your cell, and your cell will teach you everything, says Abba Moses from the early Egyptian desert. And Arsenius even says to one unstable monk, All right, don't fast, eat, drink, sleep, don't do any work, but just don't leave yourself. So the stability means remaining faithful to yourself. Your cell is the place where you meet God. Gregory of Sinai is described by his disciples as being a person of joyful and gentle character. This is what one of his disciples, Callistos, says in his life of Gregory. I saw him coming out of his cell with his face radiant and as if smiling, and he looked at me with gladness. He answered me with great mildness and gentleness, as was his custom. There was joy in his countenance and meekness in his soul within. 
Gregory Sainai is remembered above all as a great teacher of the Jesus prayer. He follows the 5th century Saint Diadocus of Photiki in the main lines of his teaching. The Jesus prayer, he says, is to be said without images. In other words, the Jesus prayer is not a form of meditation on particular incidents in the life of Christ. It is not an occasion when we imagine scenes and what Christ would have done. We do not, when saying the Jesus Prayer, think of particular sayings of Christ. We do not deliberately cultivate images and pictures of him. The images will come, yes, but we shed them, we let them go, we do not cling to them. What in the Jesus prayer we are seeking to do as we recite it is to have a sense of the total presence of Christ, unaccompanied by images, a sense of presence. And that may be accompanied by feelings of tender love. The Jesus Prayer tradition, while it encourages us not to use images, is not so severe in regard to our feelings. As we invoke the holy name of the Lord Jesus, we are to feel in our hearts warm tenderness for the Savior. but simply to feel his presence, not to make pictures or invent imaginary scenes. In the West, we have, especially from the 16th century onwards, different forms of discursive meditation, using the imagination, as taught by Ignatius of Loyola, or François de Sales, or Alphonsus of Liguori. But the Jesus prayer is not a form of discursive meditation. It does not rely on the imagination. The Jesus prayer is a contemplative prayer, a prayer of inner stillness, a prayer in which we simply wait on Jesus and live in his presence. That is the way Gregory of Sinai understands the Jesus Prayer, following on from people like the Adicus of Photiki. Gregory of Sinai allows variety in the formula we might use in the Jesus Prayer. He offers us a standard form, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. But he says some people might find that too long, so then they can shorten it. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. And then you might say, 
sometimes, Son of God, have mercy on me. That is unusual uh, because uh, that doesn't even contain the holy name of Jesus. Usually the variants always contain that. But uh, Gregory says, all right, alternate if you find it's too long. It seems that uh, also Gregory of Sinai sometimes added at the end of the Jesus prayer the words, the sinner. And that becomes very common in 19th century Russia. Who could also in the Jesus prayer say, have mercy on us. And some of the texts mention that form, though Gregory of Sinai does not. particularly important feature in Gregory of Sinai's teaching about Jesus' prayer is the way in which he places it in a sacramental context. He links it particularly with baptism. Do we think enough about our baptism? Surely our baptism is the foundation of our whole life in Christ. And yet for many of us it's something that happened to us in our infancy. We don't remember it. And we see it just as a starting point. But we don't worry about too much. Surely that is wrong. Surely we should every day recall the grace that we received through our baptism. We are to live the baptismal life. This certainly is the way Gregory of Sinai sees things. In his writings he has a text in which he offers a whole series of definitions of prayer. And in the course of this long chapter, he includes the very interesting phrase, prayer is baptism made manifest. Prayer is, if you like, the revelation of baptism. Here, St. Gregory is developing the teaching of a writer probably in the early 5th century called St. Mark. St. Mark the Monk is probably his correct title, though he's also known as Mark the Ascetic or Mark the Hermit. And Mark puts baptism right at the center of his whole spiritual teaching. Through baptism, says Mark, Christ and the Holy Spirit enter the innermost secret and uncontaminated chamber of the heart. Uncontaminated. From baptism, there's an inner chamber a hidden shrine where grace dwells and which evil cannot reach. 
that is within us from baptism a point which belongs entirely to God. Now, this indwelling presence of Christ and the Holy Spirit through baptism, says Mark, is initially unconscious. He has in mind the practice of infant baptism, which by the 5th century had become fairly general in the Christian church. But, says Mark, through our obedience to Christ, through our faithful fulfillment of the commandments, we advance by God's grace to the stage where we experience this baptismal grace no longer unconsciously but with full conscious awareness. So these are the two poles of the Christian life as Mark sees it. First of all, baptismal grace present within us, mysticos, he says in the Greek, mystically secretly, unconsciously. And then the other pole is baptismal grace present within us energos, actively, with full energy, with conscious awareness, with assurance. So the Christian life can be seen as a journey from baptismal grace present secretly and unconsciously to baptismal grace present actively and with full awareness. For Mark, everything is given to us in baptism. Baptism not only confers forgiveness of sin, but it also bestows upon us the indwelling of Christ and the Holy Spirit. And what, asks Mark, can be greater than this? In our beginning is our end. All the fullness of the ascetic and mystical life is already contained in the initiatory sacrament of baptism. So the whole of our Christian life could be summed up in the phrase become what you are. Through baptism you and I are each of us a Christ bearer, each of us a vessel of the Holy Spirit. Let us live that out. Christ, says Mark, being perfect God, has bestowed upon the baptized the perfect grace of the Holy Spirit. We, for our part, cannot add to that grace, but it is revealed to us and rendered manifest in proportion to our practice of the command. Whatever then we offer after our regeneration in Christ 
comes originally from him and is already hidden within us by him. All his gift, all his baptismal gift. So now perhaps we begin to see what Gregory meant when he said that prayer is the revelation of baptism. Through prayer we become conscious of this gift conferred upon us at the very outset in the holy font. Now Gregory of Sinai refers explicitly to Mark whom he clearly had read carefully and quotes from and he takes up this teaching about baptism and he reaffirms it. So for him, prayer, and the Jesus prayer in particular, is a way of discovering the grace of baptism. And Gregory of Sinai makes use of Mark's distinction between the mystical secret presence and the active conscious presence of baptismal grace. But, says Gregory, how do we advance from the unconscious presence of Christ and the Holy Spirit within us to the conscious presence? And he says there are basically two ways in which this indwelling presence of the baptismal Christ is revealed. The first is the practice of the commandments, what Evagrius described as the active life. And the second, says Gregory, is inner prayer, the invocation of the holy name. He writes, the energy of the Holy Spirit, which we have already received mystically or secretly in baptism, is realized in two ways. First, to generalize, this gift is revealed, as St. Mark tells us, as Mark the monk, it is revealed through arduous and protracted practice of the commandments. To the degree that we effectively practice the commandments, its radiance is increasingly manifested in us. Secondly, it is manifested under spiritual guidance. Notice there the importance of having a spiritual teacher. It is manifested under spiritual guidance through the continuous invocation of the Lord Jesus, repeated with conscious awareness, that is, through mindfulness of God. If we follow the first way, it is revealed more slowly. If we follow the second, more rapidly. Now, I think we should pause here for a moment, I don't think that Gregory really means that the practice of the commandments 
the first way, and the invocation of the holy name of Jesus, the second way, are alternatives. Surely not. Surely the practice of the commandments, the active life, is enjoined upon all. What I understand Gregory to mean is this. If we merely follow a life of outward asceticism, of fasting, prostrations, acts of loving compassion, the recitation of the divine office, we shall only progress slowly or be a hard struggle. What we need, as well as this, is inner prayer. So long as our prayer merely consists in outward ascetic practices, yes, we shall, by God's mercy, gradually draw near to heaven, but we need to have not only the outer, but the inner. So when he says, by reciting the Jesus prayer, we shall uh, reach our goal more rapidly, what I think he means is that our ascetic life, understood in the broadest sense, all our outward practices of the Christian life, will be enhanced and activated more deeply if we also have inner prayer. At many points in the history of Christian monasticism, Eastern and Western, emphasis has been placed on the outer, the exact observance of specific rules, how many prostrations you make, how strictly you fast, how many meals a day you have. All right, that is part of the Christian life. But it is to be regretted when all the emphasis is put on outer work and we do not pay attention to inner work. So yes, the one who practices the Jesus prayer would also be required to fulfill the commandments but not the commandments only. We must also embark on the inner quest if we are to discover the baptismal Christ in our hearts. So ascetic practice needs always to be combined with inner prayer. So that is the context in which St. Gregory of Sinai places the Jesus prayer a firmly sacramental context. The Jesus prayer reveals to us the presence of baptismal grace. Now, Gregory's mentor, Mark the Monk, speaks a lot about baptism, but curiously, he never mentions the Eucharist. Here, Gregory is more balanced. 
he develops the idea of the inner liturgy of the heart. An idea that's quite widespread in Christian spirituality, Eastern and Western. And in effect, he considers that the Jesus prayer, as well as revealing baptism, also internalizes the Eucharist. Through prayer, through the invocation of the Holy Name, the Hesychast celebrates an inner liturgy in the sanctuary of the heart. Prayer, all prayer, but especially the Jesus prayer, makes the soul into what Gregory calls a noetic altar on which the Lamb of God is offered in mystical sacrifice. Through inner prayer, noetically, spiritually, we feed upon the body of So, here, the Jesus prayer is definitely being interpreted not only in a baptismal context, but also in terms of the sacrament of the Eucharist. It's true that in the different places where he mentions the inner liturgy of the heart, he doesn't refer at that moment explicitly to the Jesus prayer. But by implication, the invocation of the Holy Name is included. So, for Gregory of Sinai, the Jesus prayer is set explicitly in not only a baptismal, but a Eucharistic context. One final point I would like to mention concerning Gregory of Sinai. When he speaks of the Jesus prayer, he also mentions a certain physical technique that may accompany this prayer. This physical technique is mentioned in two other texts slightly earlier than Gregory of Sinai. It's mentioned in a text on the three methods of prayer attributed to St. Simeon, the New Theologian. And it's also mentioned in another text on watchfulness written by Nikephorus of Mount Athos, who was a monk on the holy mountain of about a generation before Gregory of Sinai turned up there. This technique to be used with the Jesus prayer involves three main elements. First it is said, sit. That you might think was a fairly obvious remark. But in fact in the ancient world prayer was almost always said standing. 
one might kneel to express special penitence, though kneeling is forbidden by the canons of the First Ecumenical Council, the Council of Nicaea, kneeling is forbidden on Sunday, and also you are not to kneel at all between uh, Easter and Pentecost, because kneeling expresses penitence and uh, Sunday is always the Feast of the Resurrection. Every Sunday is Pascha, and in the Paschal season, that is a time of joy. So usually you stand to pray. If you don't stand, you might occasionally kneel. But in the Hezekiah's tradition, in the teachers who speak about the physical technique, they suggest you say the Jesus prayer, seek. Sit on a low stool, they say, probably about ten inches high. Sit in a crouching position, what is almost a fetal position, with your head bowed, with your beard resting on your chest, they say. Gregory of Sinai recognizes that this will prove extremely extremely uncomfortable, but you are to persevere. When I'm talking to people about the Jesus Prayer, I normally say, sit on an ordinary chair, perhaps with a back and without arms. Sit with your back upright, don't crouch. Of course, you wouldn't cross your legs when praying. Anyone who goes to an Orthodox church and sits down and crosses their legs is in danger of being tapped on the shoulder by one of the old ladies and told to show greater reverence to God. So I would not myself recommend to be uh, those beginning the Jesus prayer this crouching position. That is the first element in the physical technique. The second element is to link the rhythm of the Jesus prayer with the tempo of breathing. To link the words of the prayer with inhaling and exhaling. There are various ways in which you can do this. And in fact, the 14th century writers seem to envisage different possibilities. The most obvious way is to say the first part of the Jesus prayer as you breathe in, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God. And then the second part of the Jesus prayer, have mercy on me, the sinner, as you breathe out. But there are other ways. These are not recorded in writing they are transmitted orally. And then, thirdly, while you regulate the tempo of your breathing with the rhythm of the prayer, you can also practice a form of inner exploration. You are to imagine your mind, your intellect, the noose, descend with your breath 
down your lungs to the place of the heart. In ancient physiology, that was the way breathing was understood. The breath goes down to the heart and it cools the heart, which otherwise might get too hot. That is why your breath is cool as you breathe in and warm as you breathe out. Today, perhaps, physiology is a little different. But there are no dogmas in physiology. Now, this physical technique is recommended by Nikiforos to beginners, and also by Gregory Palamas to beginners. Nikiforos recommends it to people who can't find a spiritual guide. In the teaching of the Orthodox Church today, we consider that the physical technique is dangerous and should only be practiced by those who have personal guidance from an experienced teacher. That is why the details of this technique are not recorded in writing, and certainly I have not told you the details today. In my view, a very simple form of the breathing could be used by anyone, but I would certainly not recommend you to try the inner exploration, if you do not have direct personal guidance. Anyway, Gregory recommends this method, not as an essential part of the Jesus prayer. It does not constitute the essence of Hesychast prayer. But he mentions it, and others do in the 14th century, as an aid that might possibly assist you in Useful to some, but not obligatory upon all. Gregory doesn't say a great deal about this physical technique, but he makes it quite clear that he knew about it. In the 20th century, people were fascinated when they got to know about this technique. Western people thought this is similar to what the yogis are doing. And so they began talking about Byzantine yogis. Well, yes, there are parallels in yoga, and certainly much closer parallels in Sufism, though exactly who was influencing who and how the influence was exercised, we don't know. But people often exaggerated the importance of these physical techniques. They are not essential. It is possible to say that Jesus prayer in its integrity without any physical technique at all. The only technique we need is love and faith. There are, of course, uh, two ways of saying the Jesus prayer. One we might call the fixed use, when you say it during your specific prayer time, when you are trying to pray and not doing anything else. And then there is also the free use of the Jesus Prayer, when you are saying the Jesus Prayer as you go about your daily tasks in all the passing moments of the day that might otherwise be empty. Now, clearly the physical technique that Gregory of Sinai is referring to 
is something you would only use during your specific prayer times when you are saying the prayer in situation of silence, seated, quietly. But the Jesus prayer can also be used in many other situations. We can say the invocation of the Holy Name once or several times at many points during the day. It could be our first thought as we wake up. We could say it once or several times as we're dressing, as uh, we're washing up, cleaning our room. We can say the Jesus Prayer, this is a very good way of saying it, as we walk from place to place. We can say the Jesus Prayer if we drive a car when we're stuck in a traffic jam. I don't drive a car, I rely on the bus system. And certainly the bus system in Oxford in the past at any rate offered many opportunities for prayer. Now the buses come more quickly so my prayer times are cut short. You can say the Jesus Prayer at moments of um, mental tension and anxiety or physical pain. You can say the Jesus Prayer when you feel anger rising within you. It's a very useful prayer to say at committee meetings. So there is a free use of Jesus Prayer as well as a fixed use. And so the Jesus Prayer is a prayer for all times, a prayer for all seasons. It's a way of linking work time and prayer time linking our times of formal prayer with all the other activities of the daily life. It's a way of finding Christ everywhere. So alongside the more formal use, which is what Gregory Sinai has in mind when he talks about the physical technique, that is also the free use. And this makes the Jesus Prayer very much a prayer for our time, for our present age of anxiety and hurry. Now, during Gregory of Sinai's lifetime, the path of Hezekiah's prayer, the Jesus Prayer, and more particularly the physical technique, were not matters of controversy. This, however, was to change. Just around the time when Gregory died, or a few years before that, an attack was launched on the whole Hesychast tradition. And so in my next talk, I shall speak about how this way of prayer was defended by the great theologian of Hesychasm, Saint Gregory Palamas. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the OLTV podcast. Every Thursday we have these lectures, and every Monday we have Jack's Corner, where I, your host, Tarzan Bonanno, sit down with our founder, Jack Figgle, and talk about the founding of the Orientale Lumen Foundation and the goal to bring together the Orthodox and Catholic churches. If you like what you hear, consider subscribing on Spotify or at our Locals page. The links for that are in the description below. Thank you, and God bless.